want to talk to us about legacy. This is 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul is specifically writing a letter to his mentor and protege, Timothy. And he writes this. And the things, Paul says, you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable or faithful people who will be qualified to teach others also. The things you've learned and heard and, and heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful people who will be able to teach others also. Would you join me as we pray? Jesus, we love you. Speak to us this morning. Amen. Turn your neighbor, give him a high five as you find your seat. I wanna begin with a corporate acknowledgement, that being... Friends, family, church family, in my culture, we would say mishbucha. We have a problem. We have a problem, namely a uh, strangely fixated sort of myopic viewpoint that has somehow permeated the generations. It's this mindset and mentality. Maybe you can relate to it if you would be so bold. You walk into a room and inexplicably your first thought is, everyone's looking at me. Anybody relate? Everybody's judging me right now. Everyone's, hey, everyone, oh, I cannot believe. And you already have decided. Would anybody be like, yeah, I can relate to that. All right, maybe it doesn't happen all the time, but we tend to go in this direction. Number one, that's a whole lot of pressure, okay? Just like take the weight off because number two, it's not true. Like, they're really not. It's okay. There's bigger fish to fry. There's things going on. But we live in the midst of this modern era in which there is this problem that I want to label the self-center. We have a problem. I want to call it for our operating conversation together this morning, the self-center. Now, the question is, where does this come from? Tim Keller, any of you heard of Pastor Tim Keller, right? The Yoda of our spiritual generation, incredibly wise theologian and missiologist. Pastor Tim Keller was dialoguing on a podcast and he was talking about the skyrocketing nature of anxiety, especially in the next generation. And he said, I believe it comes from two core elements. Number one, what has happened in our modern society is that social media has exacerbated a problem that always existed but has now been magnified. We quite literally feel like in our digital lives we are the center of our universe. We are the selfie generation. That's number one. He said, but number two, compounded with this reality, is that we have become an increasingly secular society. Which means that if God is out of the picture, I am the captain, I am the master of my own destiny. I am responsible for my life turning out in the way that it is intended to work. I am the one, I've got to make it happen. I've got to figure it out. I've got to have the plan. And so if you have that sort of pressure with that sort of self-focus, it's a recipe for disaster. It's a recipe for the moment we find ourselves in right now. We have a problem, the self-center. I need us to acknowledge that there are unique evils and idols that beset every moment and specific moments in time and culture. And one of the core in our current cultural moment is the self-center. In the room, online, wherever you might be watching from. And I've defined it as this. We are only thinking about myself right now. What the self-center means is I am only thinking about myself right now. 
See, God exists outside of time and space. Juxtaposed with you and I, mere mortals, we are stuck in time, but we're supposed to be thinking about our lives and legacies beyond our time. Are you tracking with me? Now we see this unique reality because God's heart has always been for generations, but we've experienced a shift in culture which has led to an often unexamined shift in mindset. Back in the day, if you've been following along or you're a Bible reader or you even have some degree of historical knowledge, back in the days, people used to sit there weeping. We see it throughout the scriptures. Lord, give me children, give us kids. And some degree, some of us to this day still sit in that place, but now we have a whole subset of culture where we're posting videos about how amazing it is to not have kids. Our mindset has shifted. There's been a fundamental shift in the landscape of culture, and yet God has a way that we were designed and intended to thrive. In our current cultural moment, we live in an age of your career and your retirement and your 401k. And while there's nothing wrong with that imbalance and moderation, we live in an age of your, 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 and yet the nature of the kingdom is totally different. Anybody been following along in the fluent Bible reading plan? We just finished up Genesis. All right, hasn't that been great? We're getting ready, by the way, to start uh, the second sprint going through the book of Exodus. So if you didn't jump in, there's still time. I think there's a QR code somewhere where you can scan and get some info about that. But I've, I've been stunned just even at the very beginning of humanity's story with God, God's heart echoing and reverberating for generations and legacy and multiplication. God calls Abraham, and it's all about teaching and blessing the generations. God speaks to Joseph as he's there in Egypt, and it's all about preserving the generations. And ultimately, from his lineage comes Yeshua, Jesus, the promised Messiah, and through him, all the nations will be blessed. You go from the Old Testament to the New Testament here in 2 Timothy, and God is saying the same thing, speaking and thinking about future posterity and generations. And he tells us we should be too. I've got one core thought, one big idea, and I'll unpack it together. And if you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to jot this down. Here's a thought. You don't thrive when you only focus on you because you were created to invest in others. You don't thrive when you only, keyword, operating word, only focus on you because you were created to invest in others. Two stopping points along the way as we talk about legacy and investing in the next generation and multiplication and spiritual lineage. The first one is this, you got to be living it. Turn to your neighbor and say, you gotta live it. You gotta live it. Number one, you have to be living it. Here, if we jump back into the scriptures, Paul continues his diatribe to Timothy in, ver in chapter three, verse 10. He says to Timothy, you, however, Timothy's his protege, his disciple, you, however, know all about my teaching. You know about my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kind of things happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, let the, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Paul says, we did life together. You got to see it all up close and personal. You experienced in my real life what, I, what happened and what people did and what God did and how he came through. You've got to be living it. Listen to our heart here from the multiplication fluency. Part of multiplication is the result of simply being. Like reproduces like. 
Fire will not produce ice, and distracted Christians will not produce focused disciples. Whew, come on, somebody. Thus, we need to live a life that is truly worth following, since so much of what we reproduce will be done accidentally. Can any parents in the room relate to that one? How in the world did my kids learn? Yikes. See, some things are not just taught. They actually have to be caught. Let me explain. I have a favorite beverage. There's one beverage that I believe is supreme, at least in my mind and heart. And if we were to hang out, if we were to go and have dinner together, I would choose this beverage over any others. It doesn't matter the time of day. I will drink it in a house and I will drink it with a mouse and I will drink it on the stairs and I will drink, I don't know, I went into Dr. Seuss. I got young kids. It's just, it's my preference at all times. It is the supreme sports drink, divinely inspired from heaven in a moment of need. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Gatorade. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Fierce grape and fierce melon are my personal favorites. Just in case you're wondering, you need all of the flavor in there, right? That's what I'm saying. And um, so I, I have realized this more and more, especially as I have kids. Now something unique happened. I never sat my kids down and gave them a sermon about the wonders of Gatorade, although that's not a bad idea. But over time, my kids came to call this sweet nectar from the gods, uh, dad, dad juice. That's what they called Gatorade for the first several years of their life. They called it dad, dad juice. I never taught them that. I never told them that. They were just sharp kids and correlated. They're like, well, there's this one drink that he always likes to drink. They called it dad, dad juice. Now, it also might have been because I did not share it with them. Because there's too much sugar. Like, I'm a good parent. That's why. Stop judging me, okay? I didn't want my kids to be exposed to all that additional sugar. And also, their palates were not sophisticated enough to, to really benefit and appreciate the glories of this Gatorade. And so, but they started calling it Dad Dad Juice. And to this day, you could give them apple juice or grape juice, but they're going to pick Dad Dad Juice. See, I made disciples, and I wasn't even trying. Part of our heart in the fluency, this multiplication fluency as we're going through this Who We Are series is you will teach what you know, but you'll reproduce who you are. Parents, can I get an amen? You'll teach what you know, but you'll reproduce who you are, which means the starting point, if we want to have a conversation about spiritual lineage, is we first have to, we must, it is imperative that we live it. You got to live it first. You can say all the right theology. Your kids are going to follow your duology, what you do. Which means we become great repenters. You got to live it so they can catch it. It starts there, but the call is clear. clear. We also have to be teaching it. Point number two is this. You got to be teaching it. Turn to your neighbor and say, you got to teach it too. You got to teach it too. You got to live it, but we got to teach it. Now, there are two core challenges for us in our modern era as we approach multiplication and, and legacy and spiritual lineage. The first problem is we live in an age of hyper-individualism. We're so busy, we're so consumed, we have so little margin that oftentimes in an unintentional way, there is actually no space for someone to even get close enough to say, like, like Paul said to Timothy, hey man, you saw what I did, you heard what I said. Well, people are not even close. Problem number one is hyper-individualism that never lets people close enough and it is compounded by problem number two, the self-center, where we typically only have a vision for our own self and our own lives and not for the lives of others. 
My wife, Nancy, is absolutely incredible. She's an amazing mom. She's an incredible disciple. I totally married up unapologetically. But she's also an incredible leader. And so Nancy will regularly invest in and raise up other leaders, especially next-gen leaders. And so she was investing in this young lady who God had a call in her life, and she's working with her. And as happens invariably in life, this young lady, this emerging leader, dropped the ball on something. And it happens, right? It's part of life. And so she came to Nancy, and she was like, oh, yeah, you know, drop the ball. And Nancy was like, I mean, everyone had to, you know how it is when someone drops a ball. You got to, everyone else has to jump in. You have to pick up the slack. Like, you put everyone else on the scramble drill. And so she's just like, oh, you know, it happens. And Nancy was like, amen. But also, and so Nancy was like, I actually have to do some, like, I can't just live this. I actually have to teach this. And so she said, hey, have you, have you considered how your actions impacted other people? The girl was like, oh. And she kind of went through the mental exercise of beginning to think. And Nancy was like, well, you know, I, th- this person had to do that, and that person had to do that, and, and we, it was a joy. We love you. Like, we totally, but, like, have you considered? And, and she finally came to a point of saying, oh, wow, I should probably, like, maybe go apologize. Like, that might be good. That might be good. That's a good idea. It's great. It's part of loving. It's part of coaching. It's part of parenting, right? You got to live it, number one. You can't just be a hypocrite saying all the right things and doing all the wrong things. But, number two, you actually have to teach it. It has to be caught, but it also has to be taught. As I often feel inspired, if we want to use a football analogy, every good and perfect gift comes from God. Thank you, Lord, for football. If we think about football, uh, you're not going to become a good football player or a good coach just from watching it on TV, right? Somebody actually has to lean in in your real life and teach you. This week, I came on the story of Iowa coach Hayden Fry. Anyone familiar with Hayden Fry? One of the famous coaches in college football history. His assistants went on to become some of the most famous college football coaches of all time. I've got a picture here of Hayden Fry's 1983 staff. The quote from the article says, they were arguably the greatest collection of coaching talent in the history of the game. A group that would go on to win a staggering 722 games as head coaches, including 32 bowl wins, 9 BCS bowl wins, 35 top 25 finishes, and 15 major conference titles. And that's not even including Fry's own accomplishments as a coach. That's just from his coaching tree. Now, this this idea did not stick in 1983 and stay there. It has become an emerging part of the conversation in modern athletics, right? Any of you football fans or sports fans, you'll hear about coaching trees. You'll hear about Kyle Shanahan or or Andy Reid and and this legacy of young coaches that they raised up and mentored and developed. And there's something within our modern conversation that feels particularly pulled in this area. It feels uniquely valuable. It just feels right. It just feels good. It just feels like, yeah, the, the zenith of human achievement should not just be individual success. It should be investing in the next generation's success, right? Why is that? It's because it was hardwired into us by God himself. It's what he's created us for. Part of my dream for this moment is that God would stir and spark our hearts beyond our culture's vision of success to begin thinking about investing in the next generation. I dream of a spiritual coaching tree of kingdom legacy bearing fruit well after I am gone because it's our call. And it's why I'm here today. 
Up on the screen, I have a picture of my mom and dad, two of the most incredible disciples, disciple makers, and kingdom leaders that I have ever known. There they are on a date night at a Florida Panthers game with all seven hockey fans that live in South Florida as the empty stands, you know, they didn't care. Shortly after this picture, my father passed away unexpectedly of a stroke. Some of you got to know him and love him. And I think about the incredible legacy that was the life of my dad. My dad was an amazing leader, exceptionally humble, teachable, kind, gracious. And as I sit and think about my life in this current moment and I stand on a stage and I'm getting to talk to you all and what an honor and privilege it is, I am deeply in touch with the fact that I, not, I do not stand here on my own merit. I am the recipient of generational blessings. I'm not up here because I'm smart enough, articulate enough, good enough, or good enough looking. My hair's growing backwards at this point, you know, although bald is beautiful, amen. Um, but I'm here because my parents were faithful and they were faithful over the long haul. And a lot of what I've been able to walk into is a result of the deliberate faithfulness and grace of God on my parents' life that I have now been the benefactor and recipient of. By the way, what a vision for parents in the room. That your kids would be able to stand on your shoulders and start where you left off. Totally what I've gotten to do. It's incredible. Amazing. I was talking to Pastor Mike. We've been sermon prepping together almost 17 years now. We still do it almost every single week, and we do sermon planning almost every quarter together. And, and we were talking about this topic I knew I was going to be sharing with you all. And he said, you know, John, one of my favorite things to tell your dad was that you embody the best of him and your mom together. And what an honor that is. But I feel it in a little bit of a different way because right now, my wife Nancy and I, we got two little Jew Rican babies of our own. And I'm like, what, what a dream. Like, you wanna know my dream? My dream would be that somebody comes up to my kids someday and they say that same thing. They come over to Nancy and they say, man, your kids, Liam, he has like the best of you and the best of Nancy. That'd be amazing. Right, parents? Wouldn't that be incredible if that was the testimony for your kids? I stand in this unique spot right now where I am both the product of the generation that came before me and a producer of the generation that is coming. And that's the way God always designed things to be. And yet there's a problem in this scenario. While I personally am deeply grateful for the spiritual lineage that, my ha that I had in my earthly parents, I realize that most likely, statistically, I am of the absolute minority. See, we live in the midst of a spiritual multiplication crisis. For probably many, if not most of us in this room, you did not have a earthly father, earthly mother who were incredible and loving. And yeah, human, imperfect, made mistakes, but by and large just loved you and brought the kingdom into your life. And you're now walking in the generational blessing. You're having to start for many of us from scratch or from negative. It's not just us in the room. Generation Z is now probably the most unchurched, most biblically illiterate generation in the history of America. It's the culmination of this tragic reality. For any of you Bible fans, if you've read through the scriptures, do you remember the story of Eli and 1 Samuel? Eli was a priest. He had a call and a mandate to serve God, and he did that, and yet he had sons who did not. 
They did not follow in the footsteps of their father, honoring the Lord. What we see in 1 Samuel is what we see right now in our modern world. We have always had a problem with reproduction with no multiplication. But it can change with us. The beauty of this is whatever we've inherited from our earth parents, we have a heavenly father who because of Jesus and the grace of God, we can begin a whole new generational shift in mindset and mentality. We can begin because of the grace of God, a whole new heritage to pass down to our children, to our children's children. It can all be reset because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And I'd love for us to get a vision for exactly that. You're like, all right, John, what are, you, what are we supposed to do with all this? I want us to get a passion, and I want us to get a vision for becoming increasingly fluent at learning to hand off the baton. Let me tell you what I mean. In Tokyo 2020, the men's 4x100 relay team were the overwhelming favorites to win the whole thing. They had the fastest, the most talented individual runners and athletes of the entire Olympic Games, and yet they struggled with the handoff. It was heartbreaking because all of the sports writers were, were hyping up this team. They're finally going to do it. They're finally going to make it happen. And yet they missed the handoff. And not only did they not win, they did not medal. They did not even make it to the next qualifying round. It was an absolute bust and an utter failure. One writer said it like this. While they had all of the talent and all of the individual skills needed to win, they lost. They didn't lose because they weren't fast enough, but because they struggled to effectively hand off the baton. I went down a little rabbit hole in the midst of my study and prep and realized, I'm like, man, that's such a bummer. And then I, well, that happened the last Olympics. Oh, that happened the last Olympics. Since 2008, the U.S. men's 4x100 relay team has struggled and struggled and struggled almost every time having the superior individual athletes because they can't figure out the handoff. And a literal generation has happened where we've struggled with the handoff. I'm like, that'll preach. What's happening in America at athletics is not staying in athletics, it's come to the spirit. Welcome, Gen Z. But imagine if we got a heart like our father and said, we're gonna invest in the next generation. We're gonna consider not only our own success, our own comfort, our own accolades, but we are actively gonna follow the heart of the father, thinking about not just the run, but the handoff but the passing of the baton. Can you imagine what this world would be if your vision extended beyond yourself? Whew. Let me make it tangible. It's one thing for you to get off porn and find freedom. And that's amazing. We celebrate with you, but can you help other people get free? It's one thing to become a great husband, to become a great wife, to have inherited real dramatic sort of nightmarish principles and ideas, but by the grace of God, you get there. But can you help other people become great husbands and great wives? It's one thing to become a great microchurch leader, a great business leader, a great serve team leader, a great youth leader, a great kids leader, and help see people thrive. But can you help other people become great microchurch leaders, business leaders, and serve team leaders as well? I mentioned my earthly parents, Neil and Jamie Lash. My father was a messianic rabbi. 
but my influence extends beyond my biological family. I am here because of exactly this within Greenhouse. You guys did this with me. I came here 2004 as a punk college freshman with hair. If you don't believe me, hoop, there it is. Nick, you remember that. You know why I came to Greenhouse Church? Because Nick Schmidt took a little rinky-dinky van that was falling apart, and he drove to Tolbert Hall every single Sunday morning early, and I convinced a bunch of college kids to come. And sometimes I told them we were going to church. Sometimes I just told them, like, we are going to get food. They didn't always know, but we brought, I am here because of Nick Schmidt. I'm here because guys like Pastor Mike and Eric Lightman and Murray and Helen Brown and Pastor Robbie and Sally Martin and Betty Wilkinson and Diana Nolte and so many more invested in me. I stand on your shoulders. That's why I'm here. It's the grace of God. Amen. No doubt about it. But it's this church family. Church, this is who we are. Yeah, give yourselves a hand and Jesus. Amen. This is who we are. Because a bunch of you took in this punk college kid full of energy, lots of zeal, very little wisdom. I'm sure I was a holy headache to a bunch of y'all. But you loved me. You invested in me. You encouraged me. You challenged me. And God's grace empowered it all and filled in all the gaps. Amen. And here I am today, pastor in a church, by the grace of God. And most of the time, they're thankful for it. Most of the time. Church, I'd love for us to get a vision for handing off the baton. I'd love for us in the midst of a hyper-individualistic culture where all we think about literally, look at the Olympics, is running our individual leg. What if we began to think like God in this area? What if we began to say, God, in your kingdom, success is not success without a successor. I'm gonna get good. If I'm gonna get good at one thing, I'm gonna get good at this. Handing off the baton. Because the kingdom, by the way, is not a sprint. It is a relay race. Who says who? God. God. He said, John, how do I do that? I'm glad you asked. First, do exactly what Paul said here. Identify faithful people. Everybody say faithful. Identify faithful people. He said, the things you've seen me, heard me do, seen me talk about in in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful, reliable people qualified to teach others also. How do you decide who to invest in when it comes to the baton handoff? Faithful people. Lots of people, by the way, heard Paul preach. Timothy was the only one, apparently, who got the letter. Why? Because apparently he was faithful and he was willing to invest back in other people. This is an incredible, extremely important caveat. Paul poured out like crazy, but he seemed to only pour out in focused ways to those who were willing to pour out into others. I know that is not our cultural MO. I'm telling you it should be yours. Proverbs says, he who refreshes others, he himself will be refreshed. It's not just godly, it's wise. Get a vision for handing off the baton. Microchurch leaders, serve team leaders, business leaders, let me talk to you for a second. Do you have an apprentice? Do you have someone that God has given you a vision for, a heart for, that you have a unique sense of value in in what God could, wants to do in and through their lives? If you do, amazing. Invest in them and help them and encourage them to teach others also. If you don't, start praying now. It's the heart of God for your life and your legacy. The first step is to identify faithful people. 
The second step is to let them in close intentionally and regularly. Remember the dilemma of the hyper-individualism that we face in our current cultural moment. It takes intentionality to even have space enough to let people in your life and watch you celebrate and triumph and epically fail and repent. And by the way, people need both. So many of you in this room did that with me. I remember Pastor Mike came up to me. He's like, hey, John, you really seem to like to talk. I'm like, I do like to talk. He's like, I think you actually have a gift for communication. Do you want to work on that? I'm like, I'd love to. So we've been doing sermon prep for almost 20 years now. He made himself available. He's like, I'm already doing it. I might as well bring someone in who God's got a call in their life to do the same. Many of you opened up your homes, let me come in. I picked your brain, I, you know, asked all sorts of probably inappropriately intrusive questions about life and parenting and marriage. And y'all just said, all right, why not? This guy's hungry to learn, let's let him in. And you just, you gave me access to your real lives, not just your highlight reel, social media lives. Blooper reels and all. It's the way we grow. I remember we get done with sermon prep and Pastor Mike's like, oh, I'm going, going to go to the grocery store. I'm like, can I come with you? He's like, uh, sure, I, I guess so. I'm like, all right, and we go there and we get to talk to one of the baggage clerks about Jesus and pray with them. And some of you, I've been in your home and had meals with you and, and while you're parenting your kids and on the mountaintop and in the valleys and it's, it's letting people in close intentionally and regularly. Microchurch leaders don't just have an apprentice. Don't just lead in front of your apprentice, lead with your apprentice. Business leaders, lead with your apprentice. Bring them into the prayer, the prep, and the process of leadership. And lastly, deploy them early. If you want to hand off the baton, identify faithful people, let them in close intentionally and regularly. And lastly, deploy them early. Any fans of The Chosen here? Anybody watch The Chosen? Yeah, it's great. I love it. One of my favorite moments is when Jesus commissions the 12 and he sends them out two by two. You guys remember this moment? Like the disciples are all pumped at this point because they feel like they got picked for the winning kickball team. They're like, this is awesome. This is amazing. Jesus, do your magic trick. Like, wow, look at that. Moby Dick became like, a, you know, fed everybody. This is amazing. Star kissed to Moby Dick. And this is so cool. And wow, Jesus. And, and they're getting all excited about this. And then Jesus is like, all right, guys, here's the plan. They're like, yeah. He's like, you guys do it. Like spiritually pee in their pants. They're terrified. They're like, what? Can you say that in church? Sorry, Pastor Mike, I just did. They're terrified. They're like, oh no, this is not the play. And yet Jesus, as the genius rabbi and teacher that he was and is, knew that you only grow so much from spectating. After a while, you get the law of diminishing returns. Now you're not being spiritually fed. You're becoming spiritually obese. You gotta exercise. That'll preach. So Jesus sends them out. It's kind of like when my wife Nancy and I do marriage counseling. How many of you when you were married were like, I was totally ready for all of it? <laughs> right? Everyone laughs. You're like, ah, that's a joke, right? Because the, the goal of marriage counseling is not like, and in five and a half sessions, we're going to get you completely ready for all of marriage. That's called creepy televangelist, right? That's not how things work. The hope of marriage counseling is you're ready enough. We've talked through some of your core heart issue stuff that'll probably come up. And we talked about hers and we talked about some of the tensions of your dynamic that you'll need to work on and some of the strengths that are exist and some of the ways the enemy might try to bring about weaknesses. But at the end of the day, the hope is that you're ready enough and you learn about marriage by being married. Married people, can I get an amen? Same idea when it comes to discipleship. 
Well, how do I know when uh, my, my apprentice, this person God has given me a heart for, this next-gen leader I'm working with, how do I know when they're ready? Oh, they won't be. They won't be. You just kind of need them ready enough. And then you send them out like Jesus did. Check this. And then you be wildly available for them when they come back with success stories and heartbreaking stories to encourage, mentor, and coach forward. Great reproducing leaders give those they are developing a chance to fail, step out, and try it earlier. Give them a shot. Give them a chance to try. Give them a chance to grow. Give them a chance to spread their wings. Give them a chance to fail. And then debrief, coach, and encourage them afterwards. Because in the kingdom, success is not success without a successor. So let me ask you. Matter of fact, you can close your eyes if it helps you just keep a little bit of focus in this moment. Who has God given you a heart for? Who has God given you a unique heart, vision, perspective for? Who is it then, when you think of them, when you hear their name, all of these incredible things that God could, wants to do in and through their life, come to your mind. Who is that person? If you don't have a person, ask God. Once he gives you a person, identify them, let them in close intentionally and regularly, and then raise them up and send them out. And just watch how God works. You can open your eyes. I don't want you to fall asleep. It was a couple Wednesdays ago, my wife Nancy and I have been leading a microchurch for almost 12 years now, and we lead it out of our home in South Florida, and I came back from our tiny group time. We split up at the end of microchurch, and, and I'm like, I came, you know, God's kingdom just like showed up in our South Florida garage one Wednesday night, and I came back to Nancy, and I was like, babe, this is why I'm still alive. She was like, I mean, I would have liked for like me or the kids to be in that equation somehow, but like, amen. And I just started telling her this story. In our church in South Florida, we've got this guy named Zach Colley. He's one of our worship directors. Some of you might remember Zach from his time here in Gainesville. Zach has just exploded as a disciple. Like, he is absolutely amazing. This guy's like a walking, breathing disciple maker. He, like, gets around. He's like a walking fruit, kingdom fruit tree. Like, everywhere he goes, fruit just drops. Life springs up. I mean, it's incredible to watch Zach do his thing. And so Zach does these discipleship groups, these core groups, and, and it's wild. And he just sits down with people, and he talks about learning to hear God. God's voice and to step out and obey and to follow God's lead. And, and it's just been so incredible. And so we're there one night in my garage on a Wednesday. And one of the guys that was in Zach's discipleship group starts sharing. He's like, okay, guys. And you could just see it in his eyes. He was alive. He's like, okay. I think for maybe the first time in my life, I heard God's voice and stepped out. And we're all like, come on. You know, we get like that, like, yeah, there might have been some chest bumps in there. Don't judge us. And we're like, come on. And, and so he starts telling the story. He's like, I was at work and, and I was doing my thing and I had to go to this appointment and I walked past this guy and I felt that little do, 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 when you know, like, God wants you to do something. But you're like, oh. He's like, and I, I wimped out. I totally wimped out. And I start walking and I'm about to get to where I'm supposed to go. And he's like, and something in me just went, come on. You're a disciple. He says, so I turned around like a movie. <laughs> He said, I turned around and I went up to this guy and, and I, I shared it. And it wasn't anything like crazy profound. It wasn't like he didn't all of a sudden, thus saith the Lord, and he start, you know, the guy starts levitating. None of that. It was just a very normal sounding thing, but it was uniquely supernaturally timed because that's how God often works. 
So he's sharing the story. And all of a sudden, this guy's brother, who just started coming around to the church, chimes in. He's like, man, do you have any idea what that probably meant to that guy? That probably changed. And he starts, he starts exhorting him. He's like, that probably changed his life. You have no idea. That wasn't a small thing. And he just starts going. And then he just starts unveiling his soul. He's like, all right, well, since we're sharing, here's what's been going on in my life. And he just lays out his life and dirty laundry and history with God. And he's like, but you know what? I, th- I think I'm going to follow Jesus too. Amen. <laughs> like now this microchurch is getting good. So this guy, the brother... He brought a guy with him. He's got a little Jewish star necklace on, which I'm like, that works in our home, in, my, in our microchurch. Like, I'm a Jewish pastor of a Christian church. So I'm like, hey, shalom, brother, welcome, you know? And so he's there. He's like, you know, I was just talking with now the brother, and somehow we started talking about faith at work, and I don't know yet what I believe about God or anything, but I think God is moving right now, and I just feel like I'm in the right place, and I need to keep coming around. Amen. Yeah, sounds good. And then there's another guy in the garage. This is a true story. Can't make this. I mean, I guess you could make it up. That would be called lying, though. This is true. There's another guy in my garage, first time he's ever been at microchurch. And he's watching this thing go down, and his eyes are huge. He's like, what in the world is this group in this guy's garage? And so we all get done. He's like, well, apparently this is a place where you could just share anything. He's like, so, and he just starts sharing about addiction, and he starts sharing about it heartbreaking family history. And he's like, man, I, I've, never, I've never been in a group like this where people are so encouraging, welcoming, inviting, but it seems like you guys challenge one another to be better. I'm like, that's a great vision for microchurch. Yes, that's exactly it. He's like, great. On the drive home with the friend who invited him, he gives his life to the Lord in the car. Yeah. It's amazing. Nancy was like, okay, now I get why that story was so incredible. But, but, but I look at this and I'm like, man, four generations of discipleship in one garage, in one evening, and it was, it was well beyond anything John Lash could have done. I only knew one of those guys in any significant or deep way because God has, in his kingdom, uniquely wired each person with gifts and perspective and influence and circles of influence that nobody else is going to touch. And if we could invest in and have a vision for more than just our lives and our ministries, but for legacy in the next generation, man, we could see the kingdom come. And isn't that what we long for? See, you don't thrive when you only focus on you because you were created to invest in others. I'm going to close with this story. There's a pretty cool thing happening in South Florida where pastors and churches across denominational lines are joining together for Jesus, kingdom, ministry, worship, and doing stuff in our city. Some of it is, I think, out of desperation, to be quite honest. We're in post-Christian South Florida. Like, it feels like nobody's on the team. So anybody that's on the team, you're like, you like Jesus? Okay, good. I love Jesus. Let's work together. We need each other, you know? Which, by the way, is always the case. So we've been working together, and one of the guys who's about my age is another pastor in town, and we've really struck up a great friendship, and we've become really close friends. And somewhere within a few months of this, we realized that our dads actually knew one another and did ministry together in South Florida. My dad had been doing ministry for a long time, his dad, and sort of like the more we've become friends and he's talked with his dad about me, my father has now since passed. He was like, yeah, John, my dad said that they used, not only did they like know one another, they used to get together and every time they would, because they both had sons, they would pray for their sons to come to know and follow Jesus. Yeah, it, it feels like so, 
you know, I don't really know how the mystery of like, how does heaven exactly work and all that, but apparently there's a cloud of witnesses that know something about something happening on earth. Like, I just imagine my dad up there smiling big as he's like, man, father, you didn't forget the prayers. So now me and this guy are doing ministry together like my dad and his dad used to do and pray for us all that time ago. It's really special. And so we were, we were talking back and forth one day. We talk, probably couldn't connect about once a week, me and this pastor buddy of mine. And uh, he said, you know, John, I was, I was talking about you. And my dad just started recounting stories of doing ministry with your dad. And he said, as he was sharing, like each thing he was sharing, I'm like, he's like, John, he could have been describing you. The way he was talking about your dad, he's like, so I just need you to know, like, John, you are just like your dad. And it got me emotional then. It gets me emotional now because my dad is one of my heroes. He was a man. He, was, he wasn't a perfect man, but deeply loved Jesus and deeply loved people and walked in humility and was kind and always learning. I mean, to the day he died was sharing the gospel with people and, and praying for people and absolutely. And, and one of the longings of my heart, I'm like, if I could finish my race, however long or short until I pass that baton into eternity, if I could finish my race as half the man, half the father, half the leader, half the husband, half the disciple that my dad was, I would say, Dianu, it's enough. Well done. That's amazing. And it just hit, it hit my heart. And, and I told him, I said, man, thank you so much. That was that means more than you realize. And I think about that for you and I, because the reality is if I zoom out beyond just the story of my dad, it hits me in such a deep way because the things that I so admire and value about my dad are actually reflective about my heavenly dad. And that's why it feels so good. It feels so right. It feels so healthy is because in those areas and in those ways, he modeled heavenly dad. And I think about the vision that God has for your life. Maybe you didn't have the best earthly dad. Maybe you didn't have a present earthly dad whatsoever, which by the way is increasingly the norm in our modern moment. Maybe your relationship with your, both of your earthly parents was strained, but the reality is that the dream of the father in heaven who's ever present and loves you so deeply is that you would interact with people and you would spend time with people and you would talk to people and you would engage with people. And by the end of those consistent interactions, they would say, man, I don't know what it is about you, but you are just like your dad. And here at Greenhouse, our dream, our absolute heart's desire is that we would be a tribe, we would be a church family that look just like our dad in heaven. And that then we would join him on his mission, in his heart, that we would partner with Father to reproduce and multiply the things that, that he has done in us, that he has said to us, that he has worked in us. And we would reproduce those things intentionally and strategically with great heart, love, and intention to ordinary people who become just like our Father in heaven as well. Friends, this is our call. What an honor.